Hello, welcome to the podcast at Jesuit Baptist Church. We're in the middle of a Sunday morning series right now, preaching through one of the servant songs in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Really enjoyed this uh, series so far. The title of the message this morning is The Substituted Servant. Please enjoy. Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, we're walking through this chapter leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And uh, I've enjoyed it thus far. We'll continue to enjoy it until we get there. And this is just packed, 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 full of truth. And it's just an amazing journey. And I am excited to be right smack dab in the middle of it. And uh, Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. And uh, one last time, uh, let me get you to stand, respect and reverence the word of God. We'll read our scripture and then you can sit back down. Uh, our, our passage is verses four, five and six, but I want to start at verse one and read to verse six. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. And he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one like from whom men hide their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, this is our text right here. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The title of the message this morning is The Substituted Servant. The Substituted Servant. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us today. Lord, I pray that your power would be upon us and we would uh, hear the words of God as they're taught this morning, Lord. And I pray the word of God would speak to us in a way in which we've never heard before. Maybe if there's some truths went over this morning that we've heard in the past, maybe this morning those truths can be renewed in us and we can have new appreciation for the truths presented in the word of God today. Be with our service. Give us a great preaching service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's finish reading the rest of the chapter. I want this chapter ingrained in us by the time we get done. We'll pick back up in verse number 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off 
of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it, be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, I've got a simple question for you this morning, starting out. Who in here would not give up a portion of your food if your child was hungry? And I'm sure not only would every parent in here do exactly that, I'm sure you've done that as a parent. Uh, just uh, give up something. You go hungry so your child can have. Maybe you have just, uh, not that you don't have money to go to the grocery store, it's just you ain't had time to go to the grocery store. And so, you know, you look in the pantry and, you know, there's uh, some baked beans here and there's a three-year-old land of cre- uh, a three-year-old can of cream corn. And, you know, you're not exactly, but you find something, but it's not quite enough and you really don't want to go to the dollar store. So you just give it to your kids. And you just go hungry. But, you know, what, what I'm saying is, is that you, when you go hungry where your child can eat, you're substituting yourself. That's exactly what you're doing. I want to tell you a story about a man, and uh, the date is May 21st, 1946, and the South Pacific on an island, they were doing an atomic test. They had two uh, hemispheres of uranium that they were pushing together, and what they were doing in this test is they were seeing, once they pushed this uranium together, how long it would take that uranium to have a chain reaction and go critical. Well, they had performed this, this experiment several times, and the guy who was, in, who was doing the experiment is what he would do is he would push the uranium together, he would wait until it started to chain, and right before it started a chain reaction, he would stick a screwdriver in the middle, pry them apart, and the chain reaction would stop. He had several good tests uh, doing exactly this. Well, one time he, he did this test, he pushed the two together, it started to chain react, and just as he was about to plunge his screwdriver in the middle of the two hemispheres to push them apart, he dropped the screwdriver into, has anybody ever worked on a car and had a 10 millimeter socket and it fell off the ratchet and you heard ding, 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 and it, you don't hear it hit the ground? So it's in the car somewhere. And you, you want it to go be like a bullet. You want it to go straight through. I don't drop it as long as it hits the ground afterwards. But he dropped that screwdriver, and it went down in the machine, and there was no finding it. Well, I mean, this uranium is about to chain react, so there's some bad things about to happen. What he could have done is he could have 
he could have immediately jumped down, which would have saved his life. But instead, he reached inside the, uh, the experiment and with his hands physically pulled the uranium apart. Now, what that did is that saved seven lives that day because there were seven other people in the, in the laboratory with him. He saved their lives. But on the way to the hospital, he told his friend, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die. I knew when I touched it, I was going to die. Nine days later, at the end of a painful, excruciating, torturous end, that man died. But he gave his life so that seven other people could live. I'm here to tell you today that a substitute is a wonderful thing. A substitute is a wonderful thing. And that's what Jesus was for us. He was our substitute. And more specifically, he was a vicarious, penal substitute. Now, as we go through the message today, I'm going to explain what those mean. And the first word is, you've heard that word before, vicarious. A lot of us parents, we do that through what we live vicariously through somebody. And that's what, kind of what it means to put on something for somebody else, to do something for somebody else, to, do, to be in somebody else's place. And a lot of times we as parents, we live vicariously through our children, don't we? Uh, you know, the reasons why I take my boys to Smoky Mountains is because my parents took me. And it was some of the greatest times in my life, I loved it. I fell in love with it, going to Obergatlinburg and the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum and Dollywood, the whole deal. I loved that growing up. So I take my kids so I can relive my childhood vicariously through them. This is being honest, okay? But that's what vicarious means, you know, through some, and then penal is a punishment. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. So last week we talked about the scorned servant. And in verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 53, we talked about how the Jews viewed Jesus. The, the Jews looked at Jesus and they were totally and utterly unimpressed with this guy. They were unimpressed with him. They looked at his life and they were unimpressed. His birth was humble. His hometown, despised. His profession, very, very common. The company that he kept, the people he chose to be around, absolutely wretched people. Wretched people. His life was inconsequential. And his end, his death, his death was not only horrific, but his death was humiliating. His death was so humiliating and horrific, we hid, our, we hid our faces from it. We couldn't even look at it. And the Jews said to Jesus, or said about Jesus, you are a nobody from nowhere who means nothing. Now, who is saying this? We talked about this. This Isaiah 53 is written from the perspective of the Jews in our future looking back to the cross. So that's where the perspective of Isaiah 53 is written. The Jews in our future looking back to the cross. So this isn't, this isn't back to the future, this is ahead to the past. Great Scott, 
You know, and so, you know, we're ahead and we're looking back to the cross. And what the Bible tells us is that when all the elect of the Gentiles comes in, when all the elect of the Gentiles has been saved, that's going to trigger the end times. We don't know when that will be. Nobody knows the day. Nobody knows the hour. Jesus will come as a thief in the night, the rapture. He'll take the church seven year tribulation. Okay. Then at the end of that seven years, we'll have a uh, the second coming of Christ. During this seven years, the seven year tribulation is a wake up call for Israel. They're automatically uh, uh, going to uh, many of them, not all of them, but many of them will come to their senses. The book of Zechariah says that that two thirds of the Jews will be lost, but one third will be saved. One third of the Jews in that last day, they will repent in the last days. They will look back to the cross. And in the last days, in the seven year tribulation period, while 144,000 Jews are preaching, one third of the Jews will get saved. And when they get saved in that last day, they will look back to the cross. And Isaiah 53 will be their song. Isaiah 53 will be their confession. Isaiah 53 will be their lament. They will look back on who he is. They will look back on where he came from. They will look back on what he did. And they will think to themselves, what did I do? Sometimes I have a trouble forgiving myself for stuff. I got trouble with that. Sometimes I can say something really Stupid. You ever do that? You just say something so stupid and you get so embarrassed or you hurt somebody's feelings or they were standing around the corner and you were talking about them and you didn't know they were around the corner and you said what you said. You can't take it back. That's why I don't gossip. I've been burned. I've been burned. If I say it, it, when I, I've made a rule to myself, when I talk about people, whether they're, I, I talk about people, whether I talk about them like they're in the room or like they're standing around the corner. I never say anything about anybody I would not say to their face. That is a rule of mine. I don't do it because in my immature days, I was burned doing that. Got into some trouble. I you know you think back on those times and you're like, oh, man. If I only had a time machine, maybe I can go up to Mr. Tom Toller and ask if I can borrow his DeLorean and go back and change some things. You know, the Jews are going to look back and say, man, what did I do? We did not even esteem him. We looked at him and retreated him like he was a nobody from nowhere. And we've been doing that now for 2,000 years. John 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, that was what we did last week. This week, you know what we're going to talk about? Verses 4, 5, and 6 is Israel's repentance. This is Israel's repentance. Israel is about to make a 180 degree turn. They're going to turn from unbelief to belief 
in this verse, in these verses. This is Israel's repentance. They are going to admit that the arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ and the message is the gospel of Jesus. And Isaiah 53 is just an amazing, amazing chapter. 66 books, just like 66 chapters, just like the 66 books of the Bible. And they're separated just like the Old and the New Testament. And the, the last section is 27 chapters, just like the New Testament. And nestled right in the middle, the Holy of Holies of Isaiah is Isaiah 53. Isaiah even means salvation of the Lord. But Israel is about to repent. And how they're due to that is they're going to admit that they were wrong. They're going to admit that they're wrong. And man, that is something that we as humans, we don't like to do. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. Well, Israel's about to say, look, we were wrong about a few things. Verse, uh, verse number four, my first point this morning is... They're going to admit they had a wrong attitude. They're going to admit they had a wrong attitude. Let's read verse 4, the first word, surely. Stop there. Surely. That's the turning point. That's the 180 degree turn. That's them spinning on their heels. The word surely is a reversal. The word surely is a sudden change. Surely means truly, verily, certainly. We were wrong. We did not esteem him. He was a nobody from nowhere. And can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He's a carpenter. His brothers and sisters are with us. And now they're saying surely. And so there's a change. There's a reversal. There's a 180 degree turn. Surely, truly, verily, certainly, we were wrong. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Now, we already talked about the verbs throughout this chapter. And, of course, the verbs show us that this chapter is the Jews look in the future looking back to the cross. But there's another part of speech that I want to draw your attention to in this chapter. And that is all the first person plural pronouns in this chapter. Because there are a lot of them. Our, 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 us, us, us. We, we, we. You know what they realize? They are the problem. They realize they are the problem. And that's the first step of repentance. That's the first step. Of, it's not all of repentance, but that's the first step. Part of repentance is taking responsibility for your sin. You are taking responsibility for your sin. Repentance does not mean you will never sin again, because if that's the case, nobody's going to heaven. It's going to be empty. Nobody's going to be up there. But you must take responsibility for your sin. You must admit that your sin is wrong and that you are a sinner. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are the problem. We are sinners. You have to admit that. You cannot be saved 
and live in sin and say, oh, this isn't sin. It's good. If the Bible is against it, it's sin. It's sin. When you repent, that doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again. But it does mean you have to say that sin is wrong. And when you are regenerated in Christ and you become a new creature, you will grow out of that as you mature. That's how this works. So you can't la-di-da-di-da, everything's good. I can live in my sin because it's not really sin. It's okay. No, you didn't repent. You didn't repent of it. You didn't admit to God that your sin was wrong. And that's what Israel is going to do. Israel is turning from their sin of saying he's a nobody from nowhere that means nothing. Then they admit that Jesus is my substitute because of my sin. That's, that's repentance. That's the first step of repentance. They are admitting some things. They are admitting that not only did Jesus take my sin, but Jesus, and this is an amazing thing about Jesus. You see, he doesn't just take your sin. He takes what your sin produces. He takes what your sins produce. We got the words in this verse, griefs and sorrows. Know what griefs mean? Griefs mean sickness and disease. Brother Brad, why do we have sickness and disease? Because of sin. We have sickness and disease and outward ailments because of sin. It is something produced by sin. It's outward. Now, the word sorrows is inward. It, it reflects inward pain, pain on the inside. And the Bible says in this verse that Jesus carried those things away. He, he, he took on those burdens. I can have a supernatural peace inside of me no matter what's going on on the outside. No matter what circumstance I'm in, I have a supernatural peace that comes from the inside. It grows on the outside. And no matter what my circumstances are, I can have peace because when Jesus died on the cross, he carried all of my sorrows and he carried all of my griefs away. And I don't have to carry those anymore. Man, there are some Christians that forget this truth and they try to carry them anyway. But you don't have to carry your griefs. You don't have to carry your sorrows. You don't have to do that because Jesus took all those burdens on himself. He took our sorrows. He took our grief. He carried those things away. One day, it's coming in its ultimate fulfillment. One day, it's coming. He will carry away sin and the effects of sin for good. Because we have a home in glory. We have a home in glory. And how I long for that day when sin and the effects of sin will be taken away. Just think about it for a second this morning. No more sin. No more death. 
no more cancer, no more abortion, no more murder, no more goodbyes, no more depression, no more sadness, no more anger. Everything that sin is and everything that sin produces will be taken away for all of eternity. And when you wake up in the morning and every single day you fight your flesh, you fight your flesh every single day. It is a battle that every from the time you wake up to the time you put your head on your pillow, you fight the battle of your flesh. And one day, because of Jesus, that battle will end for all of eternity. And you'll never have to fight that battle ever, ever again. Yet, we esteemed ourselves stricken. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. One day, the Jews will admit, we thought he died on that cross because of his sin. See, the Jews still think that today. Jesus died because he was a sinner. Jesus died because of his transgressions. Jesus died because of his iniquity. That's what they thought. That's what they still think today. After all, he claimed to be deity. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be equal with God. And that's what they thought. That's why he's stricken. That's why he's afflicted. That's why he's smitten of God. What do these words mean? Well, stricken means like you're stricken with a disease or plague. You become stricken. The word smitten, even though it means says smitten of God, smitten literally means being beat, being beat to death. And afflicted means destroyed. And it means humiliated. And the Jews will say, we thought that he was humiliated and we thought he was diseased. And we thought he was beat because of his own sin and his own transgression and his own iniquity. After all, he claimed to be alive before Adam. I mean, Abraham was alive before Adam, too. He claimed to be alive before Abraham. He claimed to be the creator. And like I said, the Jews still think this today. They think that Jesus was crucified for his own blasphemy. Every single Jew that has ever lived since the day of Christ has been taught the name of Jesus just so they can deny it. They still think this today. But one day, God will choose 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. You know, I used to want to go up to Jewish people and ask them, what tribe are you from? Are you from Benjamin? Are you from Judah? Are you from this tribe or that tribe? Because that, man, that stuff interests me. They don't know what tribe they're from. See, because when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, all the records were destroyed. They don't know what tribe they're from. But guess who does? God does. God knows what tribe they're from. And one day he will choose 12,000 from each tribe during the tribulation to preach to the Jews. One third of them will be saved. One third of them will repent. And they will say, when they repent, it was our griefs. 
It was our sorrow. It was our sin. It wasn't his sin. It was our sin. It wasn't his transgression. It was our transgression. It was our iniquity. He took our place. He became our vicarious penal substitute. 1 John 2.2, and he himself is the propitiation. It mean, kinda, it's a word that means satisfaction. He was the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You know what the pagans used to do? The Greeks, the pagans, Zeus and Apollo and all those Greek gods. And what they would used to do is they would make offerings to these gods as a bribe to not be displeased with them. But that's not the idea in Christianity. You want to know what the idea of Christianity is? God himself presents himself as our sacrifice to satisfy his wrath for our sins. Did you catch all that? So he's the God. He's the sacrifice that sacrifices himself to satisfy his wrath for our sins. You don't have anything to do with your salvation. He does it all from start to finish. Jesus' voluntary death as sacrifice, as our sin offering, has averted God's wrath from us. He took care of the sin problem. You say, oh, there's a sin problem in the world. There is. The problem is Jesus already took care of the sin problem on the cross. But what you have to do is you have to accept his substitute in order for God to be sacrificed, to be satisfied. So that's wrong attitude. Verse 5, we're going to call this wrong behavior. Let's read verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And by the way, in, in 1 Peter 2, Peter tells us that Christ is the only one that could have done this. He's the only one who fits this bill. So here in verse 5, we've got some very, very descriptive words. Okay? Pierced, crushed, chastened, scourged. Okay, so what Isaiah is doing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's trying to write down these descriptive words to relate this information, and he's choosing very general words that mean general things. And I'm sure Isaiah, as he's writing these words, he could mean, well, these words can cover a very wide array of things, a very general, that way everything is covered, okay? That's what probably he's thinking, and I want you to remember, you have to remember that Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ. You have to keep that in mind. You know what this is here? This is a Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. Okay, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s and 1950s, they dated the, the copies back to 300 years before Christ. 
You know what's in this Bible? Isaiah 53. So we can prove that this passage existed at least 300 years. I've got the proof in my hand that it existed at least 300 years before Christ. And that's a feat in and of itself. But no, it dates 700 years. 700 years before Christ this was written. Isaiah had no knowledge of the cross. He didn't know what crucifixion was. And the first word he writes is pierced. Now the word pierced can be a general word for a violent death. And then he says crushed. Crushed can mean trampled. It can mean bruised. And then chastening. Chastening means he was punished. He was punished. Okay, and then scourged. The word scourge, it means to wound. So these are very general words that can apply to a very wide array of things to describe a very gruesome event. But then you fast forward 700 years and these very general words, they become very specific, don't they? These general words that Isaiah used become very, very specific. Pierced. Jesus was pierced five times. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. And in Psalm 22, 16, it says, They have pierced my hands and my feet. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace of supplic- and of supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him uh, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn son. That is packed right there. That restates Isaiah 53 right there. One day, one day the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will have the Holy Spirit poured on them. And when the Holy Spirit is poured on them in the last day, they will look back at the one they pierced and mourn. That's Isaiah 53 right there. That's a loaded verse. John 19.34 but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And three verses later, he tells us this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on whom whom they pierced. He was pierced. But not only that, he was also crushed. Jesus was blindfolded. He was slapped. He was punched. The Gospel of Matthew says that they picked up sticks and beat him in the face. Could you imagine the welts and the bruises and the swelling that he experienced because of this? And then chastising, was he chastised? Yes, he was chastised. He was indicted in a mock trial with false witnesses. And even Pilate was blackmailed into passing an execution sentence. So, of course, yes, he was punished. And then scourged. Was he scourged? Matthew 27, 6, But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And we know about scourging. We know about the cat of nine tails. 
the nine leather strips. At the end of those strips were bone and glass and sharp rock. That when they hit Jesus, not only did they hurt from that pain, but when they pulled the cat of nine tails back, ribbons and strips of flesh were tore off of his body. He went through all of that. He was scourged. So now all of these very general words become very specifically about Christ. Another thing I want you to notice in this verse is there's a negative and there's a positive to this verse. Okay? Here's the negative. For our transgressions, for our iniquities. Now let's define these words a little bit. A transgression is to violate the word of God. That's what a transgression is. As the definition of a sin, a transgression is when you violate the word of God. You know what iniquity means? Iniquity means to twist double. It's perversion. So not only for our violations of the word of God, but also for our perversions. In Leviticus, there was a sheep that was sent out to the desert that would never be seen again. This was called the scapegoat. Now, there was a lamb that was also the sacrifice, and then that, that was a sacrifice whose blood was shed. And there was another lamb who the sins of the people were put on him. He was sent out into the desert, never to be seen again. Both those lambs are Jesus. He is both of those lambs, but, but this scapegoat, all the burden of the people's sin are put on him. All the transgression, all the iniquity are put on this scapegoat and sent off in the desert to die. And this is what Jesus was. He was the scapegoat. The sins of all the people were put on him. He suffered for our sin. But that's not the only reason why he suffered. See, he didn't only suffer for our sin. That's the negative. And I'm going to tell you the positive in this verse, that he suffered for our well-being. And he suffered for our healing. Do you know what the word well-being in the Hebrew is in that verse? It's the word shalom. Shalom. See Jews talk, hey, shalom. You know, my little curly orthodox curls, my shawl, shalom. That's what shalom is. It's your well-being. It's your safety. It's your rest. It's your peace. It's your prosperity. That's another reason why Jesus died for me and you. Not just to take away our griefs and sin and the effects of our sin, but He died so we can have peace and so we can have prosperity and so we can have rest and so we can have safety. And that's why the Gospel isn't just to save you. The Gospel is to carry you through your Christian life. But then also for our healing, for our spiritual healing. Because we are healed spiritually through his suffering. The death of the physician healed the patient. See, and that's the kind of doctor that Jesus is. I guarantee you, your doctor's not like that. Um, I'm not going to go to Dale. And say, um, I need some kidneys. And Dale's going to say, here, take mine. I'll go on dialysis. No, he's not going to do that. But that's what Jesus did. See, that's how Jesus, that's how Jesus heals. 
He doesn't get rid of your sickness. He takes your sickness on himself. He takes your suffering on himself. That's how he heals. Sin is a disease to mankind. Sin is a disease belonging to every man and woman and child that ever lived. To humankind, sin is a natural, hereditary, nauseous, incurable disease. But Jesus heals the sickness of that by taking it on himself. So not only do we lack peace and not only do we lack healing, we're sinners, so we fall short. So the problem really isn't what we lack, but the problem is who we are. And that's number three this morning. We have a wrong nature. We have a wrong nature. Verse six, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned into his own way. Let me ask you a question. How does a sheep act like a sheep? What does sheep do? Sheep do what sheep do. If you're a sheep, you're going to act like a sheep. Of course, we all know the story of the scorpion and the frog. The scorpion needed to get across the pond. So he says to the frog, let me get on your back. We'll swim across and get to the other side. And the frog said, no, because you'll sting me. And the scorpion says, think about it, silly. If we're out in the middle of the water and I sting you, we are both going to die. So they, the scorpion gets on the back of the frog. They get out into the middle of the pond, swimming across, and the scorpion stings the frog. And as they're both going down under the water, the frog says, why did you sting me? Now we're both going to drown. And the scorpion says, because it's in my nature. We are by nature sinners. We are by nature depraved. We are sheep. You know, sheep don't flock and don't have herds. I mean, shepherds have to keep them together because sheep are stupid and sheep are helpless and sheep are defenseless and, and sheep are wanderers and they will wander away from safety and they will wander away from food and they will wander away from water and they will wander away into danger off a cliff to the wolves. If they have no shepherd, your sheep are stupid. They each go in their own path, in their own direction, with no shepherd to defend them, no shepherd to guard them, and no shepherd to guide them. You see, Matthew 9.36 says, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus said that's what we are like. Unregenerated. Lost. We are like sheep without a shepherd. You see, He died not only for what me and you have done, but He died for who we are. He died for who we are. Part of Israel's confession is this analogy of the sheep that they're, they confess their nature. We are like all like sheep going our own way. Why? Because that's what sinners do. When you're a sinner, what other choice do you have but sin? You have no other choice. Without Jesus, we will follow our own way right off a cliff. And that is the definition of our world today because you can look on Facebook 
and you can look on the news and you can see people going their own way right off a cliff. You have people in your family that you see that have turned their back on God and they're going their own way right off a cliff. There are people who have been in this church that are going their own way right off a cliff and you see it and, you have, and you have, you're sad for them. But that's the way humans are until we don't, until we regenerated by God. Until we have Christ, we are sheep. We wander off into Jade, you know, because we have no shepherd. But the verse says, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our evil deeds, our evil thoughts, and our evil nature. The servant of Jehovah bears the full weight of that. He bears the punishment for that. The father chose the sacrificial lamb. The servant Messiah was voluntarily willing to be that lamb. He died in our place. It wasn't our sin that killed him. It was God that killed him. God wanted him to die, and Jesus was willing. He voluntarily did it for us. There's only one way to fully understand the death of Jesus. He was our penal substitute. He took the penalty of our sin to satisfy the justice of God. That's what he did. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Paul puts it another way in Galatians 3.13 where he says, he became a curse for us. You deal with God on a daily basis. You pray, you read your Bible, you praise him. You, when you deal with God, I want you to remember he doesn't deal with you according to your sin. He doesn't deal with you according to what you've done wrong. He doesn't deal with you according to your transgressions. He doesn't deal with you according to your iniquities. That's not how God deals with you. But he doesn't forget about your sins either. He doesn't forget about your sins he doesn't overlook them. He gave those to his son, to the Messiah in our place. Yes, one day this will be the confession of Israel. But this is the confession of any sinner today that wants to come to Christ. This is a confession that any sinner can make now. You can make it today. 2 Corinthians 6.2 For he says at the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know where Paul got those words from? Isaiah. Today is the day. Now is the time of salvation. Yes, one day Israel will have their surely moment where they will spin on their heels and reverse their course, repent from their sin, and turn to faith in Jesus. But maybe somebody needs to have their surely moment today. In Romans 10, Paul once again borrows from Isaiah 
when he says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on His name. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's today. Today is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. God will accept you now. I believe in a doctor when I put my case in that doctor's hands and I trust him to cure me. I believe in a lawyer when I put my case in that lawyer's hands and I trust him to plead my case. I believe in a banker when I put my money in that banker's hands and I trust them to uh, take care of my money. I believe in a Savior when I take Him to be my Savior. And I put my case in that Savior's hands and trust Him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. To save me from my sin. Have you done so? Oh, Brett, I know you're preaching through Isaiah 53. But does every sermon have to be about salvation? Yes. Yes. Because there's a reason for it. There's a reason why I'm preaching through this chapter. There's a reason why the Lord laid this on my heart. There's a reason for it. Maybe it's somebody in here. Maybe it's somebody on Facebook. I don't know. Somebody needs to hear it. But Christians... Here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that it shouldn't have been him hanging on that tree. It should have been you. It should have been me. I should have been the one on that tree. I should be the one, should be the one who was beaten. I should be the one who should have took the crown. I was the one who should have took the scourging. I was the one that should have took the humiliation took the spit, took the cross, shed blood. I should have died and still went to hell. But he took my place. He was my substitute. He was your substitute. And here's what I want to do today for the invitation. If you're in, if you're in here and you don't know that you're saved, you can come to the altar or after the service, you can get my attention. We'll go in the back and talk. Maybe you're Christian today and you are saved. And here's what I want you to do. Right there in your pew, when the invitation's playing, I want you to praise God for being your substitute, for taking your place, for taking your sin, your iniquity, your transgressions, your sorrows, your griefs for putting that on himself, our sin, the results of our sin, but not only that, but for also giving us well-being, for giving us shalom, for giving us peace and rest and safety, for giving us spiritual healing. So not only are my sins taken care of, but I can live the victorious Christian life.
That's what Him being our substitute means. And when was the last time we praised Him for being our substitute? Well, let's fix that today.